afternoon. I don't know when you guys are going to be listening to this, but it's afternoon for us. My name is Ash. My name is Amanda. And welcome back to Crime in the Coconut. I forgot to, last time, cite my sources. I know I don't have to do that, but I want to try to do that in case there are other people out there that are very interested in these cases and want to listen to or read about or watch where we get the information from so that way they can be fully informed. So my last... Can we um, clink our coconuts? Oh, yes. Da-da-da-da. It doesn't sound very impressive, <laughs> I'm sure, because it's plastic, but... <laughs> they look like coconuts. You'll see pictures. Fret not. Last episode, I gave Amanda a coconut cup, and I, it's the start of a beautiful friendship. It is. But last week, or not last week, my last episode, the first episode, we did the Cleveland Torso Murders, and um, I wanted to give my sources for that in case anybody is interested I found all of my information from, and that's why we drink their episode on the Cleveland Torso Murders. I'm going to find out what episode that is because I have it downloaded on my Spotify, so you can just skip right to it. It is episode 20, Burial Physics and the Troll of Jackass Hill, if you want to listen to that. Not that they need a plug, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'm probably going to listen to this podcast because you talk about them a lot. Oh my god, it's so good. They're so good. First of all, I like the name That's Why I Drink. Second of all, they sound like they cover a lot of really cool stuff and they know what they're doing. They do. And third of all, if we make it big enough, we could collab. Yeah, they're out in California and they do, they, they've collabed with other people before and I just, I love them. They're very near and dear to me. <laughs> so if you if you ever listen, Em and Christine and Gio and Lemon and Junie, Lemon is their petrified pet lemon. And oh. Junie's the cat, and Gio's the dog. <laughs> I was about to say, that's a lot of people. It is a lot of people. There's even more people. But um, if you ever listen, thank you, because you're one part of the reason that this is a thing, and we have a podcast now. But yes, Christine does an amazing job covering the Cleveland Torso Murders. I got a lot of my info from her, and then I also got, like, there was a really nice timeline done by the uh, Cleveland, I think it was the Police Museum website, or the Crime Museum website. Um, they had a whole comprehensive article on the murders as well. So that's where I got all that info from. I get almost all of my stuff for my little stories from Wikipedia. Wikipedia is a great source. I don't give a shit what anybody says about Wikipedia. <laughs> Usually Wikipedia. And I think I'm doing the world a favor because no one wants to read through all that stuff. Exactly. I just highlight the good shit. Sometimes I go down a Wikipedia hole. I remember when I learned about Jeffrey Dahmer, I read his entire Wikipedia page. And I think that took me like six hours. Oof. It was a wild ride. I love Wikipedia. So this week, I'm beginning a small series, and by series I mean a two-parter, because I watched a documentary, which was really what pushed me over the edge to start the podcast, because I've been tweeting about wanting to start a podcast, and Amanda's always like, please, I want to do a podcast with you. (laughs) And finally, I tweeted after I watched this um, particular documentary, and Amanda's like, please, can we just fucking do it? (laughs) And I was like, yeah. You're like, I want to start a podcast so bad, and I was like, I'll do one with you. Oh, I want to start po- I'll do one with you. I want to start podcast. Bitch! <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, okay, yeah, we need to do this podcast. But this week is the murder of Debbie Carter. Probably none of you know what this is about, unless you've watched the documentary or read um, Grisham's book, The Innocent Man. But my sources for this are not just the documentary, which is called The Innocent Man. It's on Netflix. It's super good. Go watch it. It's a small series, I think. I got, there was a really good article on Pop Sugar, which was a comprehensive timeline of the murder. And then there was also a really good article on Oxygen True Crime Buzz. So let's get it poppin'. The night of December 7th, 1982, Debbie Carter left her shift at the Coachlight nightclub in Ada, Oklahoma. She entered her apartment, but shortly after, so did her killer. 
I'm going to give a couple disclaimers in this episode. There is rape. If you are not privy to listening to that, I completely understand. I will give notice before I go into detail about it if you want to skip or if you just can't handle it at all. I understand if you skip this episode. Debbie was brutally raped and murdered in her home. She was 21 years old. She also worked three jobs. She supported herself completely. And it was just snuffed out. Why do bad things happen to I good know, people? I know. And I'm going to talk about it more at the end of this. And then when I do the second episode that correlates with this, she was just a shining light. And it just is, it really sucks that such an independent young woman was taken out. The very next morning, this, this part hurts my heart. The very next morning, an old friend of Debbie's, her name was Donna Johnson Palmasano, found shattered glass at the apartment. Palmasano heard music coming from inside the apartment, which spook fucking spook. Like, can you imagine shattered glass and all you hear is a radio playing from inside the apartment? She let herself in because the apartment was not locked. When she got inside, the apartment was destroyed as if there had been a fight. And it was in that disarray that she discovered Debbie's body. She had been in town and had swung by her place to have a chat with her high school friend. Oh. It hurts my heart. So that friend freaking out, because she's like, the killer is still in this house. Like, mm-hmm. I'm a young woman, too. So she ran to her car, and she called Debbie's mom. And what? Did not call the cops? Maybe she had called the cops at this point, because I think she told her mother, like, the cops are on the way. Oh, okay. But her mom, I watched her mom in the interview. Her mom is like this, I think they call her Peppy, but her name's Peggy. But she's like this spitfire old woman. Oh. Very, like, she's got that Oklahoma accent. She's recalling that day, like, when she was told. The, fr- the friend, Donna, called her mom and said, I found Debbie's body. The police are on their way. I just wanted to let you know. She's like, please don't drive here. I just wanted to let you know that the police are coming and that I don't know if Debbie is alive or not. Donna, being the spitfire mom she is, is like, oh, I'm fucking coming. I'll be right there. Her car wouldn't start. By the grace of God, her car would not start, because I cannot imagine her coming in to see her daughter the way that she was And, like, having that mindset, like, driving is not a good idea. No, I can't. I can't imagine. So, that didn't stop her, though, because she started fucking walking to the apartment. And on the way there, her sister found her, stopped in the car, and in the interview, her sister and her both said, I never said a thing. She just knew what I was about to tell her. And that just, like, hurts my heart. You just know your daughter's gone. Mm. This was the 80s, so DNA testing was not commonplace yet in homicide investigations. Um, It was super, super flawed, especially in a small town like Ada. Um, Nevertheless, though, DNA was collected from the heinous crime scene, and here is what they found. This is the disclaimer I'm going to give you. I'm about to go into full detail of what happened to Debbie, the way she was found. It's bad. It's really bad, so if you can't handle something like that, skip. Do it to me. I'm ready. (laughs) Debbie was found face down, completely nude in her bedroom. She had been raped repeatedly and sodomized with a glass ketchup bottle. During the autopsy, the coroner noted that she had defensive bruises and abrasions on her arms, meaning Debbie fought like hell. The cause of death was strangulation, which was done with a custom leather belt that her mother had bought her that said her name and the cord of an electric blanket after a washcloth had been shoved down her throat. Written in blood on the walls of the room she was found in were the words, Jim Smith will die next. On the kitchen table were the words, don't try and find us or else. Us. Us. (laughs) That's important later. Duke Graham is next was written on Debbie's back, and the word die was written across Debbie's chest. 
one of the paramedics who came in started vomiting after they entered the scene because of how horrific it was. A paramedic who sees all kinds of stuff started to vomit because it was that bad. The evidence collected from the scene included hair that was on the floor, the bed sheets, Debbie's underwear, a pack of cigarettes, a can of 7-Up, the ketchup bottle, the belt, the cord, a partial bloody palm print that was on like the floorboard next to her body, um, and semen was also recovered from her body. Now on to the suspects. We're done talking about rape for the time being. I don't think I go into too much more detail, so it should be safe from here on out. Despite all the evidence that they were able to find, there would not be any sort of conviction or suspect until March of 1983, four months later. A local man named Ron Williamson had been placed at the coach light where Debbie had been working the night of her murder. Um, through a series of interviews, the most important one being given by Glenn Gore, a local who was also at the coach light that night, said that Debbie had grabbed him in passing and asked him to quote-unquote save her from Ron, who had been badgering her and would not leave her alone. Investigators focused in on him as Ron Williamson lived just a few blocks from Debbie's apartment, and he also had a history of arrests. He was noted at a, as a violent person, not for any sort of rape or any murder conviction previously, but he had an anger problem. He was really their only lead at this point, mm -hmm. um, especially because somebody had put him at the club that night bothering her. The following June of that year, Dennis Fritz, William's essentially only friend in the town, because again... They said, don't try to find us. So they're looking for more than one person. Dennis Fritz was also interviewed uh, as investigators believed that this had to have been done by more than one person. At this point, though, despite everything, no arrests were made because they didn't have anything to really convict them yet. Despite there being little to no evidence to convict either Ron or Dennis, police firmly believed that they had the culprits. One of the biggest criticisms against that, however, was that the palm print that was on the floorboard next to her body, did not belong to Ron, did not belong to Dennis. And at the time, um, the OS, OSBI agent, his name was Jerry Peters, that's basically just an FBI agent, mm. did not believe it even belonged to Debbie. So they're thinking, That's what I was going to say, maybe it was Debbie's handprint, but... Yeah, they didn't, at the time, when the murder happened, they didn't believe it was even hers. So... I wonder if maybe, like, somebody was harassing her, but she didn't know who it was, and she just assumed it was this wrong guy, if he had harassed her in the past, but maybe mm -hmm. it was this other guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oof. It's a... It's about to get wild. So, they don't think this palm print belongs to anybody. They really don't have much evidence to go on to convict the people they really believe did it. So, with the frustration building and the case growing cold, they exhumed Debbie's body. Because they were going to test it again. The exhumation of the body proved that the print was Debbie's. However, retesting of other evidence made a case for prosecutors to convict Ron Williamson. Despite there being no written report of it, experts, experts claimed that Ron Williamson's handwriting matched the handwriting that was found on the walls and on Debbie's body and on the kitchen table. Mm-hmm. The nail in the coffin of the conviction, however, was the hair, sample, hair samples collected from the floor. At the time, testing claimed to be a partial match to both Williams, Williamson and Fritz. This ultimately led to their convictions. Williamson was sentenced to death, and Fritz was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Did they ever do, like, DNA the semen? We'll get to that. Okay. <laughs> um, I want to note that at the time, and again when... There is another trial for this murder later, a retrial. The hair testing that was done was botched, mm -hmm. and it was not very good testing. Um, what year did this happen? The 80s, 83. Uh, 80, yeah, 83. 
I want to get, I want to make a little disclaimer that this is going to make a lot more sense and there's going to be more information in the second episode that I do for the other murder that happened in Ada at this exact same time. Um, there was a whole team behind the appeals for Williamson's death row sentence and it'll be covered when I talk about the disappearance of Denise Haraway. <laughs> Ultimately, it was the very same DNA evidence coupled with the semen recovered from Debbie's body that exonerated Ron Williamson and Dennis Fritz only five days before Williamson was meant for execution. Mm -hmm. Retesting and reinvestigation of the case uncovered that there was another eyewitness at the coach light the night of Debbie's murder, and they had initially told investigators that they specifically had seen Glenn Gore arguing with Debbie at her car right before she left. If you remember, Glenn Gore was the man that placed Ron Williamson at the coach light harassing Debbie the night of her murder. So he was harassing her and trying to frame Ron. He was literally the last person to see her alive, essentially. And blamed it on somebody else. Yep. And what's crazy, and we'll talk about it in the Denise Haraway episode, that initial police report where these two people, I believe their names were the Carpenters, saw Glenn Gore at her car, and they named Glenn Gore. But in the report the police filed, it didn't have Glenn Gore's name. It just said someone was at her car harassing her, as if the police had intentionally left Gore out of the investigation. Do you know what Gore did for a living? I don't know what his job was, but I do know that it came out that he sold drugs to police officers in Ada at the time of his conviction. I was about to say, I'm like, he's got some kind of tie. Yep. Um, and that was kind of what spawned me, like, that was what set me over the edge to want to do the podcast, because I watched this documentary, and I was like, I have listened to so many true crime podcasts, and now I've watched this podcast, or watched this documentary, how are so many investigations botched up by law enforcement? Now, I'm not out here cop shaming or, you know, prosecution shaming. I understand that sometimes mistakes are just made or cases are just very, very hard to solve, but... No, people are shit. Yeah, people, people are shit. <laughs> but there is, especially back in the day when it was a lot easier to get away with stuff like this, there was some shady-ass shit going on with mm -hmm. these investigations. Um, and even in some of the investigations that are only not even 10 I wonder old. what kind of drugs he was selling them. Because, like, like I said, even if I was a cop and my drug dealer was like, yo, I brutally murdered and raped this woman. Can you give me a salad? Can you help me out here? I'd be like, no. I mean. <laughs> sure, I'll lose my job as an officer. But... Unless it was, like, an addictive drug. Like, I don't know. Heroin or cocaine or something cocaine like that. Cocaine or something like that. If it was, like, weed, I'd be like, nah, fuck you, I'll just find somebody else. Yeah. So, like... Yeah. I mean, I've never done any other drugs besides weed, so... Right. I don't, I don't know what that's like, but it may push somebody <laughs> over the edge. And once Glenn Gore suddenly became this suspect now, Williamson's been exonerated, Fritz has been exonerated, everybody's like, holy shit, we've had the wrong guy this whole time. Debbie's mom came out, and she said, you know what, it kind of made sense to me because... Glenn Gore and Debbie went to high school together. They knew each other. It was a small town. Pretty much everybody knew each other. Mm -hmm. But they specifically knew each other. And when she was in high school, Debbie told her mother repeatedly, Glenn Gore freaks me out. Like, he creeps me out. I don't really like him. He pissed her off. Like, he just was not the kind of guy she wanted to be around. There wasn't any, like, tales of previous sexual harassment or anything like that. But he clearly bothered her and was probably propositioning her for a while. And she just didn't like him. Mm -hmm. Debbie ain't had time for that. She had three jobs. It was also made clear that Gore's initial testimony of Ron harassing Debbie at the coach light had been completely fabricated because Ron had never been there. 
At this point, his DNA was tested against the semen collected from the crime scene for the first time since the murder, by the way. The semen had never been tested. Why? Yeah. You're going to test the hair and look at the at the handwriting? The but not- hair, by the way. Remember how I said the hair was a partial match yeah. for Ron Williamson and Dennis Fritz? It was also a partial match for dog hair. Bum science, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Bum science. That's like... So these men were convicted and spent years behind bars for a murder they never did when their hair was compared to dog hair. But they're not going to sit there and test the semen. But they didn't test the fun... Yeah, didn't test the semen. Anyway. It's like, oh, yes, this is yeah. for sure, like, human ejaculation. Like, this can only come from one fucking person. But no, no, let's test this, like, I don't know, yeah. it might be part of a rug. Ah, it's hair. Yeah. <laughs> surprise, surprise, it was a complete match for Glenn Gore. Ron Williamson and Dennis Fritz were exonerated that moment in 1999. Keep in mind, they were arrested in 1983. They were in jail from 1983 to 1999 for a murder they did not commit. Glenn Gore was convicted of first-degree murder in 2006, finally. 2006? That's how long it took to get the conviction. Oh my god. Who knows what else this guy did during that time? He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Meanwhile, Ron Williamson, who didn't even fucking do it, was sentenced to death for it originally. But he didn't, they didn't actually kill him though. No, but yeah. they were gonna. Five day, he got exonerated five days before his execution. That's crazy. I think that it's nice to know though that like, I mean, if knowing her mom and like what you said, like how spitfire she is, she probably knew it was this gore guy from the jump. Yeah. But she had to sit there and watch them like twiddle their fucking thumbs and and being like oh uh yeah i don't know yeah it's interesting too like her cousin is um debbie's cousin is very prevalent in the documentary as well and she kind of hints at the mis the carriage miscarriage of justice by the police department how frustrated everybody was that the wrong man was in prison um and she actually helped co-found and still is active today in what's called the innocence project it's a project that talks to exonerees for crimes they did not commit after they come out of death row. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, your whole life has changed. You've spent how many years in prison for something you know you didn't do? It's not easy to go back either. And you were days away from death. Yeah. And so they, they kind of talk and kind of help them get back into society and, and make friends again. But it talks about the Innocence Project, and it gave facts about it when the documentary was over. Since the Innocence Project's um, creation, which I don't know the exact date, but I'll talk about it in the next episode on this, four innocent men have been released from Ada prisons for crimes they did not commit. So Narrowly missing the death penalty. Okay, so I have multiple things to say. Yeah. <laughs> First of all, Ada's a very small town. Yes. So I guarantee a lot of the staff that were involved in this like uh, research, like the police department and everything, we're underqualified. Absolutely. I guarantee they were all very underqualified, yeah. and then they were hit with something big like this, and they didn't know what to do. Yep. Which, yep. like, if you have a desk job, and you're like, oh, I forget <laughs> how to add these numbers, let me just wing it, I feel like that's acceptable. But when, when it comes to people's lives. When you're a detective, and you're like, yes. oh my god, like, what do I yeah. do? <laughs> well, you're, I know you're right. That's kind of why I think this happened, and they talk about John Grisham, I think his name is John. I know his last name is Grisham for sure. He talks about it in his book, which I want to read so bad, The Innocent Man. Bill Peterson, who was a prosecutor at the time, was under a lot of pressure because Ada, a small town with a bunch of underqualified people, had been hit with multiple missing persons, and now he's gruesome murders. 
and he had no one. Mm-hmm. He had a bunch of unsolved crimes, no suspects, no convictions, and he was being pressured That's, to find an That answer. sounds so stressful. Yeah. Especially when you're like, oh, I live in the small town, I'm just a detective, Yeah. Uh, I can just sit and drink my coffee, yeah. And now there's five fucking missing people <laughs> and two brutally raped and murdered women. It's like, oh, I'll just drink my coffee yeah. and, you know, yeah, this guy shoplift, throw him in jail. Oh yeah. my god. This is serious business. <laughs> <laughs> Who the fuck did it? So yeah, that, uh... When I saw that number, that I mean, a small town, four men released from the same small town off a death row. Like I just, I it's like almost like they're they're like, yeah, let's just convict this guy, uh, let's just kill him, so that way if we find out that he isn't guilty, then like there's no reason because he's already dead. Yeah, yeah, man, I, I'm so happy I remember this, and I'll talk about it in more detail because it's more important to the second murder. But there was a I can't remember her name. I want to say it was Teresa. She was, like, a snitch, an informant that was already locked up for a previous crime, Mm. and she was just given information left and right on all kinds of stuff to get people convicted, and she testified against Ron Williamson and Dennis Fritz, and in the end it was revealed that she did not know them, didn't know anything about the murder, and it was revealed that police had pushed her to testify because her fiancé was gonna go to jail for a long, long time for something he did, and he avoided it. It was basically a plea deal. So she testified against innocent So men. they wanted, like, they were basically like, hey, we uh, we want to convict these guys, but we don't, we just need a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Can you just say you know mm-hmm. them and just say they did it? That way, like, we'll cut you a deal, you cut us a deal. Yeah. That's fucked up. They interview, <laughs> they interview her son and her um, fiancé as well, the guy that they saved, and he straight up was like, she did it to save me. And then her son was like, if you were born, because you will find that a lot of these people that are convicted... And in jail, and Ada are the poor of Ada. Not trying to throw out any accusations, but again, the poor people get the shaft in a lot of these situations. But he basically said, if you're born poor in Ada, you're done. That's it. You're never going to get out. But that same woman, Teresa, also testified against the men that were convicted and are still currently in jail for the disappearance and subsequent murder of Denise Haraway. That's the next girl we yeah. talk about? Yeah. So they are currently appealing their convictions. So... Well, yeah, because it said us. You think it might be all of them. You, man, Maybe. you are not ready for this <laughs> I, oof, oof. So I have one more bullet point, and it is kind of sad, but I just wanted, I wanted to bring it to light because Ron Williamson and Dennis Fritz were just as much victims in this situation as Debbie Carter was, mm-hmm. just in a different way. Unfortunately, after their release, Ron Williamson only lived for another five years before he succumbed to alcoholism that he developed after his exoneration. Friends and family said that he was not able to recover from his life, the one that he had to live for a crime he did not commit. Dennis Fritz, who had been a teacher prior to his conviction, went back to teaching, but then shortly after his release, he was in a terrible car accident, and dementia set in pretty much immediately after that car accident. And he is still living, but his memory fails him daily. Oh my gosh. So that, part one of the Innocent Man Murders... Go watch the Netflix documentary because it's really good, except for you, because I don't want you to spoil it for yourself. I won't. I won't. Don't watch TV. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, when I watched that documentary, I just couldn't believe it. I had heard of botched investigations where people literally lost fucking heads out of evidence bags and stuff that happens like that back in the 1920s and the 1800s, but this was the 1980s and it was completely botched. I'm gonna forget the name, but you know, the it's like the, search the K. The McKenna cabin murders or something. Yes. And, like, they basically had the guy, but, like, 
somehow accidentally threw away all of the as like they literally yeah. said oh we threw it away yeah. it happens all the fucking time and what i've learned through true crime podcasts is there is a chain of it's not chain of command it's chain of something and it's they log where the evidence goes every time it's moved so you how do you lose it like i mean we <laughs> we do that like in surgery Say, like, you got a lump on your arm, we take it out, it's just, like, a fatty mass. We usually send that stuff, so we call it specimen. Yeah, it's tested, I assume. We, yeah, we put it in formalin, we send it to pathology, and then, like, it literally goes from, like, you're in the OR, it's removed from your arm, put in the formalin, they mark it that I was the one that put it in the formalin, the nurse was the one that put it in the formalin, mm-hmm. we delivered it to pathology, and if it, get lost, if it gets lost somewhere, like... Like, they know who they did it. They know where it got lost. Yeah, and they know who did it. Like, right. they know exactly, like, what happened. I just... It gets corrupt. Like, there's yeah. no way that they yeah. can just be like, oh, sorry. Yeah. I think it's the... Uh, I'm probably going to mess this up because there's so many murders that are like this. I think it's the Wake Bodum murders. Maybe it's the Hendrick Kaifek murders where the entire family was murdered. And they took their... For whatever reason, took their heads off for analysis after their bodies were found. Lost all the fucking heads. Literally all of them were gone. One, why are you taking the heads off of the bodies? What do you need it for? This was like the 1920s, I think. Maybe 1800s. Two, how do you lose heads? There's so many ways to go over. <laughs> I'm even thinking about some that, like, I went through. There was, um, it was like a while ago. I want to say like 1920s almost. Mm-hmm. And it was this farm. And the farmhouse burnt down. And there was like a note basically that said like, or no, the police were like, yeah, the kids were in that house. And <gasps> I know what you're talking about, the, the missing ki- children. Yeah, the, yes. ki- the kids were in the house and they all died, but the father saw his kids' footprints leaving the house yeah, in the snow. Bitch, those kids did not die, okay? And like, he, <laughs> he, like I mean, he's gotta be dead now, but like, how awful is it that you sit there and like, know your kids are out there somewhere? Yeah, I'm or, pretty sure they ended up spending their whole life like, yeah. trying to get their kids back. Yeah, that was... There, there's so many! <laughs> like, there are so many. And that was why we decided to do this podcast, because it's real fucked out there, ladies and gentlemen. Real fucked. So that is the horrible, awful, really sad murder of Debbie Carter and the wrongful incarceration of Ron Williamson and Debbie Fritz. Oh, uh, poor, poor Debbie. And poor Debbie's mom, like, she even said in her, I think the opening statement when she's first interviewed, she's like, we were friends. Like, she was my daughter, but we did friend things. I wonder, like, like, what... Like, obviously, it was very, like, anger-driven by this gore guy. So, like, oh, like you, you have to think, like, the... And I use passion in a very negative way. Yeah. But the passion that was involved in her rape and murder. It takes a lot of heart to strangle someone. That's incredibly well, intimate. For, to st- strangle someone with... Uh, disclaimer or whatever. Uh, strangle someone with a belt. Yeah. And a cord. Yeah. And... Use a ketchup bottle. Like, and that's like... a washcloth, a bloody washcloth down her throat? Yeah. That's basically like, like, you're cooking something, but you don't know what you want to cook, so you, like, go to the kitchen. You do it all. <laughs> you go to the kitchen, and you, like, look at the cupboards, you're like, alright, I got some barbecue sauce, I got some noodles, I can do something with this. There's gotta be something, in it. and we're not making fun of the murder, but, like... I, I kind of am. Wild. Well, we're making fun of the murderer, because he's just... Well, it's just, like, it, like, that's how you know, like... Like, when you have, in like, murders that are done in rage, mm-hmm. like, you're just killing that person. Like, the only thing that's in your mind is, like, this person needs to die. So they're usually pretty quick, like a gunshot, like yeah. an axe to the head, things like that. But for you to, like, go through the steps to be like, oh, let me just shove this down her throat. Oh, I see that belt over there. Maybe I'll just do a little bit of this. Mm-hmm. Oh, ketchup. Oh, maybe a little bit of that. Mm-hmm. Like, that's, that's and, so meditative. And then for after she's dead, 
to write all of those horrible, awful, and things that, they, and he even admitted, he was like, I wrote those things to throw the investigation off. And it worked. Yeah. Like, for you to have the thought to do that after you got this dead body, raped, mutilated dead body on the floor that you just took the well, time. Well, yeah, took the time to write things on the walls and not even care if you got caught. Yeah. Because, like... How much DNA did they leave that they just missed? And again, it's not 100% investigator's fault because DNA was not, like I said, commonplace back then. But, I mean, you walk into a place like that now, you would immediately find who it is. I well, mean, yeah. I mean, we have technology now. A lot of people have, like, security cameras and mm-hmm. things like that. I thought back on, like, Cleveland Torso Murders when that guy left the torso on, like, the detective's, like... Yeah, the police lawn. Yeah, the police lawn. <laughs> like... If you did that today, there'd be footage of you doing that. Right. But back then, it was so easy to do. Which also makes me think, it's like, people don't change. Like, no. our society changes, but people don't change. So it makes me wonder how many people, like, sit there and want to kill people, but don't because of the technology we have now, because they know they'll get caught. Exactly. Because back then, people just did it because they knew they could. Yeah. It still happens. Like you said, there's two people found in the, what was it, the Coggin Valley National Park? Yeah. It's murdered. Nobody knows who fucking did it. How do you not know who fucking did it? And I thought that was weird, too, because the, there was one old, like, uh, middle-aged black guy and a younger white girl, mm-hmm. and I'm like, there's no correlation between the two. That at least it's not they, a victim type. At yeah. least they know of. Like, yeah. it wasn't on looks. It wasn't on relation, because they didn't know each other. Yeah. But it's somebody, somebody like, it. somebody just walked to the park and was like, pew, pew! <laughs> just like that. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there you could be working with somebody. Who is a serial killer? There's. I'm not gonna shout out shout out names or anything, and I'm only gonna say this because I don't think he'll listen. But I'm pretty sure my boyfriend works with somebody who's killed somebody <laughs> before, and it like you just don't you don't know. And in a, Debbie's case, like she was in her home, her door was locked, she wasn't safe. You don't know what people do behind closed doors, right? Like don't at all. Don't ever assume you're safe. Lock your doors. Lock your windows. Don't sleep with your windows open. I, we, Quinn, my boyfriend and I went to a cabin back in November and there was literally a sticker on the window that said, do not leave the windows unlocked or open, especially during sleep because it's dangerous. Well, yeah. And a lot of like people nowadays, like it it happens very frequently. I don't know where I heard it from, but a lot of people, especially inner city, will just go and check doors, like on your car, on your house. If they're locked, they'll leave. They'll be like, all right. Not worth it. Not worth my time. But if they do it and it's unlocked, they're like, shit. Yep. That's an open invitation. Exactly. And I think about that a lot. <laughs> yep. Not victim shaming if you've ever been broken into because you left something unlocked, but stay safe. Like, just... Mitch's mom had a bunch of painters come over mm-hmm. and she was like, yeah, I just left them at the house by themselves. No. And they came back a week later and robbed them. They, they robbed them. Don't do it. Don't just be smart. <laughs> I'm kind of I'm kind of guilty like that though. I trust a lot of people. Yeah. But yeah, I also have good judgment. So like when I walk, I park about ten minutes from my office. I work in the not to triangulate my position in case any future people are trying to find me. But I work in near the Civic Theater, mm. and I park at Luigi's. So it's about a ten minute walk to where I work. And when I get out of work, it's already nighttime because it's winter. It's still yeah. like five thirty six. I used to work at Barley House. Yeah. So yeah. you know exactly what I'm talking about. And I've never run into anything, but there's a lot of homeless people in the city, and there's, I mean, I'm a young woman, I probably look defenseless in my puffer jacket, but I have a knife in my hand in my pocket when I'm walking. I shouldn't have to do that, but I do. That's how Mitch is. Like, we went to Buffalo, and like, I don't know if it's because I just grew up in downtown Akron, but like, I kind of know like which homeless people are harmless and which ones aren't. So, like, I usually don't care. If a homeless guy's like, oh, hey, how's it going? I'll be like, what's up? And then like, not worry about it, but uh, we went to Buffalo, and this like... We parked on the street, and Mitch, like, had his knife, 
like out and I was like do you not want to park here and he goes why would you say that I'm like you have your knife out like, <laughs> I'm like let's just park somewhere else if you're gonna be like that yeah and, but like he says I'm too trusting because like I'll go on Facebook marketplace and I'll be like yeah just meet me at my house we're going out of town for the next four days yeah. <laughs> like, well that's I kind of did that with Quinn like we met on Bumble and I literally like the day we matched and started talking I met him <laughs> so I can be that way too <laughs> the first time I met Mitch I, I just went to his house <laughs> yeah yeah I went I think I did too we went to the gorge and then like 20 minutes in I went to his house yeah so just be safe out there, guys. Like, we're not trying to poo-poo on safety here. You should you should be safe. And if there are any people that are under the age of 18, especially listening to this, one, I'm sorry we cuss, but two, <laughs> don't trust people as much as we do. Don't do as we say, not as we do. <laughs> I think that's everybody. It's easier to, like, look at what somebody's doing that's not yourself and be like, that's not right. That's stupid, and then you do something equally stupid. But then you're like, that's fine. Fine, it's whatever. You ain't open the door and let somebody come in that you don't know or that you don't like. Don't do that. I'd be like, oh, you're from the cable company? We don't have cable and you didn't make an appointment, but sure, come on in. One time a guy came and he was, I think, working for, I can't remember if it was electricity or something, but anyway, he was working for one of the utility companies and there was like a new thing that they had put on our bill that we were supposed to read about, like a new program. And he came to my door, and I'm sure he went to all the doors and was talking about the program. And he was like, oh, have you read about it or something like that? I was like, yeah, I think I did. I'll go get my bill. And then I shut and locked the door and didn't go back. Like, I took a shower because I didn't want to talk to him. <sighs> because you don't know. Like, yeah. John Wayne Gacy pretended to be all kinds of things and got into people's houses. And yeah. so did BTK. Like, you don't know. Don't let people into your house unless you're expecting them. <laughs> All right, I think that's a good place to stop because I got to pee real bad. Me too, so thanks for listening. Um, stay tuned for the disappearance of Denise Carter and tune in next week for Amanda's episode. Which is going to be about the uh, Yuba Five people. The Yuba County Five, which yes. I've heard is the American Dyatlov Pass. Yes, that's my first sentence, actually. Yes. And I'll Spoiler. do the Dyatlov Pass sometime <laughs> if she doesn't mind. So it's going to be good. Listen. All right, bye. Peace out.